Stick with this flame, sick and I'm destined for fame. Do for the fam, not for the grand. Stunt me a destined for pain. I do not front, I do not scam. Put some respect on my name. Sick like a rain, click and I bang. Y'all gon' remember the name. Y'all gon' remember the name. What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls around the world? I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we have got on a brilliant guest. He has been very outspoken over the last few years. He is a doctor, specifically a cardiologist and an internist, and he works in a hospital in Dallas. And this is the one and only Dr. Peter McCullough. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm in a clinic in Dallas. I actually don't work in the hospital, but can't believe I finally made the Zuby podcast after all these years. Yeah, it feels like it's long overdue. Yes, thank you for correcting me. Clinic rather than <laughs> than hospital at the moment. Um, so I've done a brief intro there, Dr. McCullough, but for people who are not familiar with you, please tell them a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, as you can see, I'm a doctor. I'm in my clinic right now in Dallas-Fort Worth area. I hold degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, uh, the University of Michigan, and, uh, and Southern Methodist University in Additionally, I've done internal medicine training at the University of Washington in Seattle, cardiology training at what's now the Oakland University William Beaumont School of Medicine. And I've held academic leadership positions in medicine and cardiology my entire career. And when the pandemic hit, I was well positioned because of the internal medicine and cardiovascular aspects of the illness uh, to direct my research and scholarship towards the pandemic. I was the first to publish a treatment approach of how to treat patients uh, with the illness to help avoid hospitalization and death. And now I'm on the verge of uh, being the first doctor to publish a treatment approach to help people get out of trouble with these vaccines. Interesting. So I first heard about you, I want to say in, was it 2020 or 2021? It was before you went on the Joe Rogan podcast, um, but it was during the height of, let's be honest, the absolute madness that was ex being experienced all over the world. Um, I'm from the UK. I assume you were in the US during the majority mm -hmm. of it, but mm -hmm. I was in the UK. I also traveled to multiple different countries. I actually went to seven or eight different countries during the 2020 and 2021 time period. And I don't think in my lifetime, um, or perhaps even before it, there's ever been a single event which has affected so many billions of people around the world simultaneously. Um, the world lost its mind, for lack of a better term. I mm -hmm. think a lot of people think this is something that, oh, you know, it was just the U.S. that was like this, or it was just here, or it was just there, but it was, it was all over the place. Different continents, different nations, lots of stuff that didn't make sense. Now, of the doctors who, were, who spoke up and spoke out about it, of course, you were very much one of the few at the forefront of that. And again, not just in the US, but globally. But I'm curious to know, now that we're in mid 2023, and the temperature has calmed down, and yeah. the restrictions have dropped and the crazy policies and mandates and the back and forth and the fighting and the discrimination and the segregation and <laughs> everything that happened, right, that everyone's <laughs> trying to pretend none of it happened now. What are your what are your overall thoughts? now say a year plus removed from it all and reflecting back to that time period what are your what are your general thoughts on what exactly happened yeah i think your statement about the world lost its mind 
is correct. I know in medicine, the House of Medicine uh, quickly failed uh, Americans and people all over the world. People were falling sick and they expected to get treated to avoid two bad outcomes, hospitalization and death. And, uh, you know, doctors didn't do it and nurses and others didn't do it. And before we knew it, the hospitals and the governments wouldn't let the doctors do it. So then it became unavoidable that people would get sick. Uh, they would get so anxious, breathless, uh, so dehydrated that they would ultimately capitulate and come to the hospital. You know, most of the people who are hospitalized with COVID. Uh, they weren't put on life support by the paramedics. The paramedics picked them up and, and they were actually reasonably okay. There was They were brought into the hospital and then the average patient who died with COVID, they died weeks after the hospitalization. That's interesting. So what what do you think happened? I mean, it seems like there were failures at every single level of everything from the, from mm -hmm. the very beginning, from, mm -hmm. the, from the modeling to the communication to the pharmaceutical companies to the public health officials. I, I know you have um, a, a master's in, in public health, mm -hmm. um, the political angle, the scientific angle, the medical angle. It just seems like across the board, in my viewpoint, and I was saying this from early on in 2020, and I continued to during the period, but none of it made sense. None, mm -hmm. of, none, of, none of it seemed to be making sense if, if, if the goal was actually to help people and right. to um, reduce disease and to take care of people's health holistically, then there were so many things like on, on every level that to me, this is what set off my alarm very early is I was just like, this doesn't, this doesn't make sense, right? You're, you're, you're locking things down and you're stopping people mm -hmm. from going outside. You know, the thing doesn't spread outside, but you're telling people not to go outside and stay inside. You're closing down gyms and healthy outlets, but you're opening fast food restaurants and you're opening this and this, and you're telling people not to wear masks and then to wear masks and then you're forcing them. And that it just, I, I can't even get into all of it. It was so many layers of things that just didn't make well, sense to me. And then well, well, you know, we got the actual VAX rollout and it got even crazier. Right. So here's the thing. You could take every single aspect of pandemic response and say it was incorrect. And that is uh, a true assertion. Uh, but I think it's probably more instructive to say what should have happened. And in uh, November 19th, 2020, I testified in the U.S. Senate. I was the lead witness for the Homeland Security and, and Governmental Affairs Committee. So I, I was literally able to tell the nation what we should do. And then I subsequently chaired a five-hour session in the U.S. Senate on January 24th, 2022. Uh, and then I also chaired, co-moderated a session in December 7th, 2022. And the, the framework of what should have happened, and I've published on it now, is called the four pillars of pandemic response. That we should have had four pillars, four things that we were working on all the time. And because it was an emergency and we had all the resources available, we should have had teams of the best and brightest people come to Washington, work together, and then message out to the country and to doctors and hospitals what we should have been doing. So here are the four pillars. The first one is contagion control. 
that is reducing the spread of the virus. What we learned is the only effective method of reducing the spread of the virus was virucidal nasal washes and sprays. So that include povidone iodine sprays, colloidal silver, uh, xylitol, even salt water works to some degree. And then gargles, Listerine or Scope works fine. Iodine or peroxide in them is fine, but about 30 second gargles. So if that's done pretty intensively when someone's sick, it decreases spread massively. Actually decreases it probably about 80%. The PCR turns negative in, in about three days. Can I, can yeah. I jump in? Can I jump yeah. in right there? Because I think what you've just said, that's not something that was in any type of mainstream communication in any country as right, far right. as I'm I'm aware. Right, right. So, so what I'm saying, you know, what I'm saying is everything okay. was wrong. So the one thing that worked, now the question is when did we know that? Yeah, that's what I was gonna ask. Yeah. Well, anyway, we now are up to 17 studies. 12 randomized trials, three big trials with hard outcomes. So this is solid. This is very solid. We knew this, and this was solid by January of 2021. So I can tell you as a doctor, I didn't even know about this in 2020. I got COVID myself. I didn't know that an iodine spray would work up in the nose or a gargle, and I didn't do either one. You know what? I sat there, congested, sore throat, and then it went into my lungs, and I was cooked. Mm. So l- let me tell you, uh, <laughs> I learned my lesson now that we have the data, I'd never travel anywhere without a little bit of iodine or, uh, or xylitol or the both. So there's many things that work. On my, on my um, podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, we've had Nasal Hygiene Summit. We've had multiple uh, programs on this on my website. And on America Out Loud, there's all kinds of information on how to use these sprays and gargles. And we've messaged it out hard. In 2021, it became such a big deal that Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace, you know, did a big, uh, uh, a big uh, story in Epic Times. So why is our government not telling Americans about nasal, vi- nasal and oral virucidal sprays and washes? Because the virus was so transmissible, masks and things weren't going to work. But we actually needed to kill the virus. We needed to actually kill the virus, and you don't kill every single viral particle, but you kill enough. Mm-hmm. to where you don't spread it so readily and uh, and clearly it reduces its ability to invade. So that was the hugest advance. We rely on it today. I'm in practice. I have a community pharmacy next to my clinic here. They make a special, um, you know, a special spray and gargle that has xylitol, povidone iodine, vitamin D, EDTA, or cartagena. There's so many things that work. Um, we had one of the real knowledgeable people in the field on America Out Loud and and he was reviewing everything for us. And he said, uh, you know what works, believe it or not? Dilute baby shampoo in little kids. Dilute baby shampoo works. Even salt water. People who went out, out in the ocean and just snorted up some seawater, uh, th- th- that worked to some degree. Uh, what we found out, sadly, though, is that quickly the U.S. FDA and Federal Trade Commission sued every single company that made a nasal spray or a gargle for COVID-19. Oh. Yeah. Okay. And this is this was so bad. We found out. We said, wait a minute. Why is the, the government was not just telling people about it. they were impeding the ability to bring this innovation to the population? OK, I, I have two questions on this um, because I'm not so familiar with this nasal irrigation program. But specifically on this point, is this number one, is this something that works as well for flu? Is that something that people can be? 
because obviously yep. the, the the flu has been with us for a, a very long time right. and i've never heard this being recommended for the flu either so is it something that's equally or even more effective for that it works for flu works for the common cold uh and the literature has really grown on this this is solid there are now dozens and dozens of papers showing it reduces the viral concentrations it works against viruses bacteria and other fungi uh, and the companies struggled because they couldn't get out and market and promote these products because the government tied them up legally. Okay. And still to this day. The, the second question I have on that is, of course, that's a that's U.S. focused. But what about all these other countries? Because this was an mm -hmm. international thing. So did other governments also have this blocking of mm -hmm. this technique or these products? What what yeah. happened on an international level then? It was mixed. We heard about innovations. You know, the biggest trial that was done was done by Chowdhury and colleagues from Bangladesh. It was the Bangladeshis that did it. But do you know that in Finland, they had a nasal spray that actually had antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 as a commercial product? I did not know that. So, yeah. So it was mixed all over the world. Uh, the, the parts of the world that got the message really did well. If you noticed uh, the tropics, anywhere where people lived around salt water, they did very well. You didn't hear about it down in the Caribbean, uh, places like that around the coast. They, they did great. The worst thing for COVID <coughs> was to stay indoors. You mentioned that. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And and also with that, you had the uh, people were not getting vitamin D. Yeah, um, vitamin D, but, ju but just reducing the viral load. So one of the first things in the color protocol, that's what it became known and copyrighted as. I published this in August of 2020. First thing I said <coughs> in terms of what to do in the protocol was get outside, get outside. And when this hit in Dallas in 2020, I told my patients, listen, front porch or back porch, you figure it out, but get outside. I do not want you inside because people inside were quickly filling up all the air with the virus and they were just rebreathing it. So the worst would be to be in a New York City skyscraper or in Milan in one of these closed uh, brownstones or in Wuhan. Wuhan's a very vertical city too. That was the worst. And uh, if you noticed out in rural areas, you didn't hear about COVID disasters nearly as much out in rural areas when people got away from all that high density living. Yeah. And look, as a, as a non-medical expert, as, as, a, as a lay person in this sense, from the beginning, that seemed obvious to me. I know that one of the primary reasons why people get so many more colds and flus in the winter is because people are spending more time indoors and right. it spreads any respiratory virus like that is more likely to concentrate in the air and spread indoors. But the message was, the message was literally the opposite. This is this is the thing that to there's many things that continue to bother right. my mind to this day is it was literally do not do not go outside stay but, inside lock yourself down you know and it was I'm just like wait isn't isn't it the opposite and then of course you know the response to me is hey you're you know you're not a doctor listen to the experts <laughs> shut up whatever and I'm just like wait just logically this isn't this isn't making sense to me from multiple angles. Right. Well, well, the one thing we've uh, learned in COVID-19 pandemic response is anything that violates your common sense, trust your common sense over it. So do you remember the vignette? We actually have this in my book, <laughs> to face COVID-19. There's a guy 
he, he's out in the bay in San Francisco and he's on a pedal board. He's way out there. Yep. And they go out there in, a, yep. in like a rescue boat to arrest him for not wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. Or, or, or you've seen these uh, terrible videos in Australia and in the UK and other places, Canada, where the police are tackling people and they're mm-hmm. and with all that physical contact, if somebody had COVID, they're really going to spread yep. it once they're choking somebody and they're doing all this horrible st- stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, the, so the four pillars, the first one is contagion control. We should have had a group on this and we would have quickly learned masks don't work, social distancing, lockdowns. Now, it turns out in Scott Atlas's book, who's a contemporary of mine, He's at the Hoover Institute at Stanford. He was in the White House for about nine months with um, with Trump and the team. Uh, and Atlas kept advising them, listen, you know, masks aren't going to work. Don't don't lock down the country just to protect the seniors. And in fact, there was a document that came out in October of 2020. Uh, Bardachara, Kaldorf and uh, Gupta published it. It's called the Great Barrington Declaration. You're probably aware of it. Uh, I signed off on about a million, you know, top scientists signed on it and said, listen, just protect the seniors. You know, it's a real disease, uh, but the world didn't, doesn't need to lock down. So that was that first part of it. Now, the second pillar, the most important pillar, and that's the pillar that everybody fell down on. That's early treatment, just like with pneumonia, cellulitis, uh, deep tissue infections, anything. We must treat it early. So that was the biggest shortcoming. All governments should have had immediate early treatment programs, uh, at least encouraging the hospitals and the doctors to have early treatment programs. But, you know, instead of having early treatment programs, you know what most clinics did? They closed their doors. Most hospitals, uh, you know, went on to kind of emergency uh, mode only. And to this day, there's not a single major medical center in the United States or worldwide that had a major outpatient treatment center. Can you imagine this? All these people getting sick, they needed something to help them stay out of the hospital and none of the hospitals opened their doors. In fact, the the biggest one was in Marseille, France by Didier Riolt and he had an outdoor tent and he managed a ton of people. He treated tens of thousands of people and, and, and they were constantly trying to shut him down. He's undergone all kinds of regulatory review, a professional reprisal just for keeping people out of the hospital. Yeah, uh, this is the thing. And I still feel this way, you know, three years on from the onset of all this is, look, I like to assume the best of people. <laughs> and I like to, uh, I prefer to assume incompetency over malice, but so much stuff happened during this time period that I struggle to genuinely believe that this was just incompetence. I don't see how you can have incompetence on that type of scale, multiple cities, multiple states, multiple countries, multiple places, like all, like how, how did, how did all of, like, if it were a bit more random and like some places handled, did it, did it well and did stuff that makes sense and others fell into the goofiness and whatever, but it was just like, how is, how are all these places moving in lockstep with the same nonsensical policies, the crazy masking stuff, the the one-way systems on the thing, the random six feet or two meters apart, the locking down healthy people in their homes, the 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 campaigns that followed after with the jabs and this. Like it if a couple places didn't make sense, then I'd be like, okay, I understand that. But everywhere, right, with the exception of like the continent of Africa, 
<laughs> and um, you know, Belarus and Sweden in Europe, but pretty much everywhere else, um, you know, they marched in lockstep on this. And for me, this throws up a huge number of questions because I'm just like, I don't know, when I hear people talk about it now, it's just like, oh, you know, people didn't know it was just incompetence. And I'm like, man, there's there, there, there's more here. There's more here, and I'm not even trying to lead you down any particular path on this one. I'm just. I, I like, know. But, I, but, I struggle to think that this is is mere incompetence. But but think about how important early treatment was. Uh, by December of 2020, a paper by Gukliaklis and colleagues. I know I'm the senior author. You know, they concluded that we had we had clear and convincing evidence that early treatment worked. That uh, starting with the virucidal nasal washes and sprays done every four hours. It took about four to six drugs to get even the sickest patient through COVID at home. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't depend on any single drug. No single drug was necessary nor sufficient. Protocols came out of United States. I had the most widely used one in the world, but came out of France, South Africa, Central America, and they all worked. They used different, you know, groupings of drugs. Um, but if the governments worldwide just left doctors alone, just said, listen, you handle it, it's your problem, we don't have anything to say, this pandemic would have been over a long time ago and we would have avoided most of the hospitalizations and deaths. I mean, I mean, the people who are hospitalized and died is because they didn't get early treatment. Yeah. And again, that seems, that seems obvious. I, I, I'm not aware of there's probably exceptions to this, but with every disease that I'm aware of, it's better to, well, firstly, to treat it, <laughs> but also if you're going to treat it, to to treat it early, right? It's, you know, prevention ideally, and then failing that early treatment. And, you know, the earlier, it, it could be cancer, right? The earlier you catch it and the earlier you treat it, then Same. the better because it's it's done less damage. This seems common sense, but it's not just that that wasn't offered. It's that those who tried to offer it were blocked and that's where i'm like okay that seems that seems malicious to me i guess the the best interpretation of it could be oh you know they're trying to protect people from uh you know dangerous untested things or whatever but then speaking of dangerous untested things that you know leads into another topic and let me not get myself banned off anything but um yeah i i don't know i i'm fully mind blown from it because not a lot of people want to talk about the whole pandemic period now because i think a mm. lot of people are honestly i think a lot of people are ashamed of it mm -hmm. and ashamed mm -hmm. of how they how they behaved but i think it's important because this is you need to go back and dig stuff up and learn learn the lessons like what are the things that went went wrong right there were some very catastrophic errors and if we well, can't talk about it openly then right. how, how are we going to prevent this happening again well i wanted to comment on your you know your inflection there about whitewashing my son just graduated from medical school down at University of Texas in Houston. I was there at graduation. In fact, I was on the Congrats. stage with the robing. And his medical school class lived through the beginning, the middle, and kind of the tail end of the COVID pandemic. They were influenced greatly by this in terms of the class, the patients that came in, uh, vaccines, the whole thing. And the graduation, multiple speakers, a guest speaker, the dean, the head of the student body, not a single mention of COVID or the vaccines. And this is at the largest medical center in the world. Interesting. Can you imagine that complete global whitewash as if it never happened? Yeah. It, it's just astonishing. So let me get to the third pillar. The third pillar is late treatment, 
hospital treatment. And so how hospital treatment should have gone is we should have had updates once a month. Uh, all the major health systems in the United States should have been conferencing once a month. And we should have had comparative statistics. We should have learned which hospitals had figured out how to have the lowest use of the ventilator, uh, the shortest amount of time on the ventilator, and the lowest mortality. Do you know, three and a half years later, there still are no comparative statistics. We don't know which hospital did the best or the worst. Um, there was no collaboration. Uh, no hospital developed their own protocol. I, I went on Tucker Carlson in 2021, I said, Tucker, I said, there's still no Harvard protocol. There's no Mayo protocol. There's no, there's no hospital that's innovating, uh, coming up with, you know, like uh, of a blue ribbon medical uh, center, coming up with an innovative strategy. Americans don't know where to go. They were just pouring into any hospital. Mm -hmm. And so the hospital care never advanced. Um, and then the final pillar, pillar number four is vaccination. Now, uh, vaccination could play a role in a pandemic. Va by the way, vaccines have never ended any pandemic so far. Never. They've never ended a pandemic. So this was the first time of trying to use a vaccine in a pandemic. But what they can do is they could have potentially protected some high-risk patients. They can't end the problem. And so, you know, I was thinking in my mind, if we had a perfectly safe and effective vaccine, uh, maybe 2.7 million nursing home patients, people domicile situations. And so I was co-leading one of the vaccine development programs called Imodulon. And it was a cellular-based vaccine. And it was a company out of the Netherlands. We had the FDA, the NIH, back and forth, back and forth. We, we, we thought maybe a broad cellular-based uh, immune. It's similar to the, um, the BCG vaccine given uh, elsewhere. You may have had that actually against tuberculosis. So the point is our governments and governments around the world had no interest in this. It was only an interest in these genetic vaccines like messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA vaccines largely. And uh, our vaccine idea never had the, the light of day, yeah. uh, but, but it was only sketched out for, you know, residents of these facilities and the workers where there was documented spread. Uh, it was never in my mind you know, to vaccinate the entire population or even six-month-old babies. I mean, I just couldn't conceive of that as a doctor. We, we weren't seeing children having serious outcomes. So the four pillars of pandemic response are reduce the spread of the illness that would have been with virucidal nasal sprays and washes. That'll be true of the next pandemic. Second pillar is early treatment. That'll be true of the next pandemic. We'll probably need to use, uh, you know, generically available drugs early, early, early. Uh, number three is in-hospital treatment must improve and the hospital systems are going to have to share comparative data with this only way we can improve and share best practices. And then lastly, vaccination. I'm not hopeful now that the COVID-19 vaccines, which I'm sure we'll get into, they were a complete failure. The pandemic is still going on despite mm -hmm. two and a half years of vaccination. So. Yeah, let's, let's talk about the vaccination situation now that it seems uh, legal to do so. Yeah. What, what, what exactly, what, what, what happened there? I mean, you, you touched on something, which I remember at the time, I remember in the, the time where my, the, the red flag went up really high for me was not the sort of December, 2020 period when mm -hmm. the shots were being offered primarily, I think actually only just, I think in the UK, they started with people over 65 and then I think it maybe moved to 55 plus. Mm -hmm. And at that point, you know, 
my alarm, I, I, I did have questions about, well, what about long-term effects and how effective it could be and so on, just because it, you know, it's so new and it came out so quickly. But in terms of the reason why they were doing it, it didn't throw up a lot of red flags for me. But then when they started getting to under 30s and under 18 and children and babies and people who are not even having a rough time with the disease, that's where I'm just like, wait, this is a gigantic red flag to me because right. if this is really about public health and not making billions and billions and billions of dollars, then why are you injecting two-year-olds and babies with this thing? Like that doesn't even, even 15-year-olds who are healthy, none of that. It makes total sense to me from a business perspective, mm -hmm. <laughs> but from a public health perspective and genuinely caring about people perspective, um, I, I, I mean, I said at the time that it was utterly insane and, you know, people, some, you know, lots of people did agree with me, but also you remember how angry people were at that time period and mm -hmm. how divisive it all was. And people are there, you know, oh, you're an anti-vaxxer, you're crazy. You want people to this, you want this, you want this. And I was like, guys, like, think, think about this. This doesn't, this isn't, this isn't making sense. Just like you don't give chemotherapy to someone who doesn't have cancer, right? Like I'm not, I'm not against the medicine in theory, right? I'm, I'm not against, but if you don't need it and it's being pushed on you, then yeah, that's weird. And then they started all the incentive programs where they were like offering people uh, all sorts of things ranging from a, a voucher to visit a brothel in the Netherlands to oh. free cannabis to, <laughs> to lotteries to uh, cheeseburgers and French fries in New York City. And now my red flags are just going going crazy. I'm just like, this is very very bizarre all the songs coming out people dancing and making songs about the vaccine and i'm just like am i the only one who thinks this is weird like what's going on here yeah 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 the the, the um i tell you my red flags came out earlier of course i was following this uh by in the first year of the pandemic i was uh, by invitation writing op-eds in the hill which is a widely read journal for uh, the house of the senate and the white house um you know, I'd already been on the map uh, in terms of uh, publishing the first treatment protocol or testified in the U.S. Senate. So, I, you know, I was already a major, probably the major public figure in the COVID-19 response at that time. And I published an op-ed in The Hill in August of 2020. And the title of it was The Gamble, The Great Gamble of the COVID-19 Vaccines. And I was laying this out for America. I said, wait a minute, this is a gamble. Uh, these are brand new genetic technology. The gene, uh, the genetic material that's injected codes for the lethal part of the virus. And you can't control how much is going to be produced. I go, this is the lethal part. They didn't pick a benign part. The lethal part of the virus, and some people, it's going to kill them because you can't control how much of it's made. It's a lethal protein. It's lethal. It's been proven to be lethal. We knew this. So I was like, wait a minute. And so that when they went through the tr clinical trials, you know, they strictly excluded people with prior COVID, uh, suspected prior COVID, women at childbearing potential, pregnant women, children were excluded. And so my red flag came up the very first week. They were rolled out December 10th, 2020. And you know, in that first week, there were pictures on the internet. Over 3,000 pregnant women took the shots. 3,000 in the United States. I said, wait a minute, just two months earlier, they were strictly excluded from clinical trials, the FDA and institutional review boards. Yeah. And, and the people in the vaccine centers, they weren't nurses or doctors. They were just community volunteers or other people. I mean, 
who who was applying some medical uh, prudence here to do this? Mm-hmm. And um, and then the other thing that really struck me is I thought for sure those who had COVID before the vaccines, they would just be exempt. You wouldn't have to yes. take it. You, you were another, done. Yep, but in many ways, I was kind of glad I got COVID early. Me and my wife got it. We got through it. And so it's like, you know, it's like, whoo, good. We're not going to need a vaccine. We're, we're good. And then, and then when the vaccine program came out, I said, well, just take it anyway. Yep. Said, no, wait a minute. I already had the illness. I'm good. And there were already three papers out early. Rock, uh, Kramer, and Methodius mm-hmm. showed that if people already had COVID and they took the shots, the side effects were through the roof. Yes. So you would definitely not want to take a shot once you've had COVID. And that the natural immunity was at least, but yeah. most likely, much more strong much stronger and more robust than vaccine induced, which would also make sense given what we already know about immunology in the human body. It's crazy. As we talk about it, it sort of transports me right back to this period because I'm just remembering having these conversations with people on Twitter and in real life. And I'm just like, what is, what, what is going on here? And just uh, for, for people who are listening to this podcast, you wrote that article on the Hill the Great Gamble of COVID-19 Vaccine Development. You published that August 2020. Right. So that's that's early. That's, before, that's early. You know, that's you, you're really looking at them. I'm the only public figure who questioned the vaccines ahead of time. So it goes to show you the group thing. There wasn't another chief of medicine or, or anything else. And, you know, Scott Atlas was publishing op-eds in the Hill as well. And we were training emails. Yeah, and Scott wrote his book. Uh, you know, he never mentions my op-ed. He actually never mentions McCullough Protocol, which was published in August of 2020. I was like, Scott, mm-hmm. wait a minute. You, you spent nine months talking to the president about masks and social distancing. What, what about treating people? The president himself got early treatment. He got a form of the McCullough Protocol. It's like, wait a minute. So, you know, you, you know this came full circle because when Joe Rogan got sick, he get, basically got the McCullough Protocol and so did Aaron Rodgers and all these yeah. other public and figures was, and, and then was and demonized for it horse horse medicine yeah that's the reason why joe reached out to me but there were you know public figures that were notable uh, for instance uh kirk herbstreet my for- fam- fam- favorite espn college football announcer he gets covid early in 2020 like i did uh has a post-covid syndrome gets through it so then he takes some shots in march of 2021 blood clots he gets blood clots pulmonary embolism threatens his life. Uh, it, it's a, just a total mess in, in doing that. You would never take a shot once you've already had COVID. And that there was also many other unnatural things. So the pregnant women piece of this was was a terrible. Paper by Thorpe and colleagues, first author, I'm a senior author, shows horrendous outcomes. Uh, multifold increase in fetal loss, stillbirth, um, multiple fetal abnormalities, growth retardation, um, maternal hemorrhage and fetal hemorrhage at birth. We know now a paper by Hoyert and colleagues uh, published from the National Center for Health Statistics on the CDC website, uh, March of 2023, maternal mortality is at a record high. Highest risk group, African-American women. We now know 65% of women who delivered babies through the pandemic took the shots either before or during pregnancy. And, and you know who who is the uh, poster child for this is so sad is Tori Holt. I don't know if you you, you saw her situation. She's a U.S. Uh, uh, track and field champion. Won the uh, okay, yeah, uh, yeah. What she won the um, Tori Bowie. I'm sorry, Tori Bowie. She she won the uh, one of the relays. 
2016, U.S. Track and Field Association forced the vaccines on the runners. She's found dead at home seven months into the pregnancy with the baby. Baby's dead and she's dead. She's kind of in the process of probably a, a stillbirth. This doesn't happen. People with with means and access to health care, this doesn't happen. Yeah. And uh, these are the types of outcomes we're seeing now with the vaccine. So none of this made sense. Another thing is vaccines to be minimally acceptable in medicine, they have to be at least 50% effective and at least last a year. Otherwise you wouldn't want to keep taking shots. It became quickly known the vaccines last less than six months and that people have to keep taking boosters. Mm -hmm. So taking boosters of a novel genetic product that is coding for a lethal protein. Now, every six months, we have no idea if the, this if this legal pro, this protein would accumulate. Would it have cumulative toxicities? How does the body dispose of the genetic code? There's all kinds of fundamental questions because the, it was never studied every six months forever and ever. And if one is following the program right now, uh, they're on their seventh shot. Now, now, do you know do you know anybody on their seventh shot? Um. I don't, I don't know. I also have a policy of not asking people. I have a lot of people who voluntarily tell me their vaccination <laughs> status. No, not, not so much these days, but you know, but, but have you heard to, any public figure? Seven. No, I think the most I've heard is perhaps five, but let's say president Biden, no. former president Trump, by the way, both vaccine promoters, uh, how about anybody in the UK? De definitely, the no definitely no public figure has, I think, openly come out and said, yeah, I'm taking, I don't think I've heard of anyone taking a booster this year. Okay. That's very interesting. So mm -hmm. the official stance of most governments is still take a shot. The CDC today had an ad out saying it's safe and effective, but no one will come out as an advocate and say they're on their seventh shot. Mm -hmm. the, the science changed, didn't it? <laughs> well, the, the attitude is changing. And you know what we're lacking is we're lacking honesty. Yes. If it's people all, are not on their seventh shot, mm -hmm. why not? Human, it, it's ego protection. That's what it is. I think our podcast today is sponsored by The Wellness Company. Did you know that nearly 90% of pharmaceuticals in the U.S. are produced overseas? That's an alarming statistic. If you don't have an emergency kit on hand, it's time to get prepared. The Wellness Company's medical emergency kit contains eight potentially life-saving medications that every single American should keep in stock. It comes with a 22-page instruction guide on safe medical use for everything from snake bites to COVID to bioterror events. Another stellar product from The Wellness Company is Spike Support. Whether you got vaxxed or not, the virus is still among us in some capacity, as well as the related spike protein. Spike protein can cause brain fog, tissue damage, blood clots, and more. Spike Support is a detoxification powerhouse that aims to strengthen the body's natural immunity and flush out spike protein, so you can get back to that pre-COVID feeling. Get both of these products by going to twc.health forward slash Zuby and get 15% off with the discount code Zuby. That's twc.health forward slash Zuby and use discount code Zuby to get 15% off. Disclosure, the medical emergency kit is only available to U.S. residents. Look, I, I honestly think from a lot of stuff has gone on from a psychological perspective. I, mm -hmm. I find the whole situation, I find the psychology of it all far more interesting than the yeah. virology or epidemiology or anything else. And I think what we have now, I think the reason why people are even trying to memory hole it is because, number one, um, I think 
look, if you've injected something into your bloodstream and it's potentially dangerous or harmful or has harmed people, if you did it yourself, let alone you advocated that other people should do the same or even tried to force or bully people to, then that's a lot of, you know, that that's too much for most people to bear and to be open about, right? I think there's also the degree of ego protection. I think if you've been running around saying that anyone who doesn't you know, if you were running around in 2021 and early 2022 saying that anyone who doesn't take this thing is an idiot, is an anti-vaxxer, is stupid, is anti-science, is whatever, and then it turns out that they possibly had some good points or that they were, you know, correct in some cases, then again, I don't think most people's egos can, I just don't think most people's egos can deal with that. So I think instead people would rather pretend it's just say, hey, the science changed. It wasn't me. Um, and oh, I never said all those horrible, awful, nasty things that I said um, about other people and how they should lose their rights and lose their um, ability to live normal lives. So I'm just going to pretend that none of this ever happens. And, I, you know, I, I understand that psychologically. I think. But wait all- a minute. You have to admit, you have to admit that's pretty unique because people. I think more readily admit other shortcomings. People will say, well, yeah, I was a drug abuser and it was a mistake. I was an alcoholic. I, I committed a crime. It was a mistake. I, I think another piece of very unique psychology here is it's now known this stuff doesn't leave the body. Mm. So the, the messenger RNA doesn't look like it breaks down. The spike protein is in the body. As long as we keep looking, we keep finding it. People are staying, they feel sick for a long period of time. There's a paper by Lee and colleagues showing little micro blood clots uh, floating through the retinal veins and arteries for two years after these shots. I think what's going on, it's not like, you know, admitting uh, a, a flaw, like, uh, you know, I, I had an affair, or I, I was an alcoholic. They're thinking to themselves, oh, no, mm-hmm. I took these shots and I bought the farm. Now everybody is in a relative state of personal terror. This is what's keeping people quiet. I had a kid come in my office last week. He's a young kid, went to college, came down to see me. He looked me in the eye deadpan, and he said, Dr. McCullough, am I going to have a cardiac arrest? And and I think that is 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 the subconscious play going on in everyone's minds right now. And that's explaining the behavior. No one will come out and tell you that they're on the seventh shot. No one will come out and tell you, I I took these shots and I regret it and I want to take action. They're in this kind of state of overall panic. I've I've had a small number of people say that to me, say that to me privately. Um, But I think that as long as the establishment, including the political class, including the media, all the people who, you know, pushed and promoted and forced this thing on people, they're not willing to admit any type Mm -hmm. of error. They're not even willing to draw the obvious connections. Look, at this point, I, I mean, I personally, I personally know people who were, I know young men who were in good, good shape, who who took Mm -hmm. the shot and were hospitalized, heart attacks. Mm myocarditis like it's real like i don't know the i don't know the official numbers but of the people i personally know let alone friends of friends i personally know people where that situation happened right and someone else might be like hey well i you know i also personally know people who were you know young and healthy and in good shape who had a really rough time with the virus itself right mm-hmm. and i i can i can acknowledge both of these 
both of these things, right? Both of these realities. Sure, most people were most people were okay and seemed to be okay regardless. Um, but these situations happen, and in these cases, even when they go to the hospital, the the doctors themselves don't even want to draw any potential connection between these things, right? That we had that whole situation. It was what 2021, 2022, where lots of athletes you know, around a particular time, we're having heart attacks and we're dropping on the field and this and this, and you're supposed to sort of completely suspend your brain and think that there's no, no even possible connection. Like I'm just there thinking, okay, isn't this something that should at least be investigated, right? Like I can't say 100% and I wouldn't say 100% every single one of these cases, you know, it's this, it's this, it's the jab, it's the jab. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not intellectually dishonest in that sense, but I'm like, okay, well, some of them, like, are, are we going to just pretend there's no connection here at all? And it's just the sort of mass, mass level denial. And well, it, isn't, aren't scary. some of these psychological processes, they're contiguous with what was happening before the vaccine. We saw things that weren't making sense. People weren't following the common sense. Let, let me give you some official numbers so you can have, your audience can have them. Please do. So our CDC vSafe, which is the CDC's safety database that people self-report how they're doing on their cell phone. 10 million people you know, signed up and did this program. 7.7% of Americans who take the shot in the next day or two end up in the ER or they're hospitalized. 7.7%. That's how toxic this is. So let me tell you, the, the shot is a doozy. And they get hospitalized for a whole variety of things. But can you imagine a shot where 7.7% chance you're going to get so sick you can't even survive? You got to go to the hospital. That's the first data point. Two prospective cohort studies, one by Mansugian and the other one by uh, Mueller, uh, uh, Asia and Switzerland respectively, show when you measure everything at baseline and then in follow-up, 2.5% of people who take the shot get heart damage, myocarditis. The number is 2.5%. Now, in terms of athletes dying, uh, a paper by Polycretus and myself, I know because I'm one of the most published people in COVID, so I'm very active there. In a stable period before the pandemic, the rate of athletes dropping in the European leagues, pro and semi-pro, age under 35 active players, that's the restriction here, 29 per year before COVID. Now that number after the vaccines is 283 per year annualized. It's about a tenfold increase. Uh, what we know, paper by Holscher and colleagues, I know because I'm the senior author, shows conclusively that by autopsy, the myocarditis can be fatal. Period. It's fatal. Yeah. So so this I so the FDA says the COVID-19 vaccines cause myocarditis where I have 800 peer-reviewed papers on COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis. And you're right. The next athlete who drops or the next person who comes in with a myocarditis syndrome, doctors and nurses and people are looking at these patients and saying, it's not the vaccine. Yeah. And, and people are saying, I, do, I don't trust you. I can't believe you. At this stage, I can't believe that people are denying the fact that it's the vaccine. And I think the reason why they're doing it is because they psychologically, they can't handle it. They took the shots themselves. They can't handle yeah. this. 
Yeah, it's 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 scary. It, it's it's very it's deeply concerning. Both the actual results of what is happening to a lot of people, but then also the denial of it. Because how can you address a problem if you're not even allowed to discuss the possibility? You can't even be like, okay, maybe. There's a link here, right? We don't know 100%, but this should certainly, oh, look, we've seen a tenfold increase mm-hmm. in, uh, we've seen a tenfold increase in this since a certain thing was rolled out. Should we, maybe we should look into this. Maybe we should check. And I feel like with any other, I feel like with any other situation, whether it, any other medical product, mm-hmm. any any food product, anything, like if if something else came out and it had these type of numbers, like I remember, I remember a few years ago. I remember when Samsung released was it their Note Seven phone? I don't know if mm-hmm. you remember this. And like, people were uh, charging them, and a small percentage of them were like exploding or catching fire. It was, it was. It might have been one yeah. percent of these phones, right? You you could see videos on mm-hmm. YouTube of these phones catching fire, and there was a mass, you know, massive outrage. They had to recall the entire, like everyone who bought the phone. They had to, you know, recall. They had to compensate people and so on. And, you know, that's for an electronic product. That's not for something you actually put into your body. There have been other drugs that have gone out and people have been like, oh, wow, this has, you know, bad side effects and this and that. And people are talking about it. And, you know, the, the drug gets mm-hmm. pulled or whatever it is. And it's just this, the, the the level of defense of this one, not just from the pharmaceutical companies, which would make sense, mm-hmm. right? That's in their interest. But from just the lay person, even people who have been harmed, I mean, I remember those situations where someone literally ends up in a hospital or something and they're, they're talking about, Oh, you know, I'm glad I got it. And I recommend, uh, you know, <laughs> I recommend you go and get it too. And I'm just like, bro, you're in a hospital. You're, you're in a hospital bed after doing this. And you're telling me to go get this, like what is going on? Right. You know, I have to tell you, you know what myocarditis worry case worries me the most. This is really important. This is very, you know, we learn by cases, what's called sentinel cases where, where we have information and in medicine, we never really know the truth. We actually, we make observations, we do studies and we try to approximate the truth. It's called inferential thinking. That's what's used in medicine. The case that worries me the most by far is European basketball player, uh, Oscar Cabrero Adamas. Adamas, this is a very important case. So he has a cardiac arrest on the floor, just face down. I don't know if you've seen some of these face plants. When they go down, it's just down like a ton of bricks. He's resuscitated. He tweets out. He says, I have myocarditis from the vaccines. So it's clear. You know, he's honest about it. I got myocarditis. Then he tries to rehab. I'm sure he's, he's taking medicines like I prescribe patients. He's doing everything. And he's, he's in this process of readiness to return to pro sports. And he's in a health center. And he takes a, a treadmill test. And he dies on the treadmill test. He dies. They can't resuscitate him. So uh, listen. What's, what, what's this man's name? Uh, his name is Oscar Cabrero Adamas. Look him okay. up. A-D-A-M-E-S. This case to me really, really worries me because he took the shots in 2021. He dies in 2023. So the fear is, and there's a recent paper by you and colleagues in circulation showing that once the myocarditis occurs, some young people, these athletes, they get scars in the heart. The, the, the heart has physically got a scar, and then the scar is the nidus for an abnormal heart rhythm that's provoked with exercise. It's called reentrant ventricular tachycardia. It degenerates to ventricular fibrillation and people die. Um, I think this is what happened to Adamus. It's the reason why that USC basketball player, Nick Uichuchu, 
uh, he had a cardiac arrest. They put a defibrillator in him. They probably, uh, they used what's form a subcuticular ICD, I imagine, so he can still play. But we're going to have players that have defibrillators in them. Uh, you, you, you know, and the thing that's, um, now Adamus comes out and said he got myocarditis. Uh, but uh, Nick on USC, he never admits it's myocarditis. He never makes any public statements. He gets an ICD and continues to play. You have uh, DeMar Hamlin, Buffalo Bills. He says it's due to tackling somebody, but it's obvious, another obvious case of, of myocarditis. Uh, LeBron James' son just had a had a had um, probably a, a near-miss cardiac arrest. Uh, you've had all these players in the UK uh, and in Europe and, and this is the thing is this and this is this is famous people. This is people who are this is famous. But why right, every pro they, athlete? How many normal people are there? Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. There, there are people just in our public view. Can you imagine how many people are not in our view? They're just passing away. Uh, let me say this: There's something in the minds of people where even when a family member dies the other family members don't feel compelled to come out and warn others. I've seen this. I I, I have, I have a friend, I have a friend and this happened. Well, listen to this, uh, a democratic Congressman, Sean Kasten from uh, Illinois is pushing the vaccines publicly. He's tweeting, he's going to take the vaccines. The vaccines are going to save us. He's going to vaccinate his kids. Couldn't wait to vaccinate his kids, takes his kids and gets vaccinated. And then his daughter, Emily, Perfectly healthy girl. She's going to go to college next year. She's found dead in bed. Found dead in bed. Now, Kasten doesn't come out and say, listen, this is terrible. I want to warn other people. I've lost my daughter. He, he looks like he's in a trance. And, um, you know, I can tell you in a, two similar cases, a, a paper by Gill and colleagues published in Archives of Pathology, two boys in Connecticut, ages 16 and 17, they take Pfizer. And they die on days three and four after Pfizer. They're found dead in bed, perfectly healthy boys. They do autopsies. And it's confirmed fatal vaccine-induced myocarditis. So this is not equivocal. This isn't a guess. This happens. A paper by Holscher and colleagues uh, shows that, that, that myocarditis is fatal. When these athletes go down, uh, it's myocarditis until proven otherwise. Because, listen, they get checked out before they go into these leagues. They have EKGs. They have echoes. They're fine. They're not going to have a cardiac arrest on the field unless they take the vaccine. So when DeMar Hammond went down on Monday Night Football, uh, I went on Tucker Carlson the next night. Hammond at this time is in the ICU. He's on the ventilator. Uh, Doctors are saying all kinds of things. I go on Tucker Carlson. I said, Tucker, he's going to be fine. He's going to walk out of the hospital. You know, I, right there, people are like, how do you know, Dr. McCullough? Because I'm a top shelf cardiologist. I know what I'm talking about. I know what the outcomes are going to be. He's going to walk out of the hospital. He's going to be fine. I said, but I need to know if he took the vaccine. He probably did because 95% of the pro football players were forced to take it. And if he did, it's probably vaccine induced myocarditis. And the issue is, does he get a defibrillator? What medicines does he need? In general, we don't let the players return to sports because it could provoke another cardiac arrest in general. But having said that, we're seeing some different outcomes with the vaccine. I did have a chance to firsthand see uh, pilot Bob Snow. You probably heard about his case. He took the vaccine. A couple months later, he had a cardiac arrest in DFW airport on the jetway just after he landed a plane 
Fortunately, the paramedics were at the gate next door and they resuscitated him. Uh, he survives. And, and his mind is clear. It took, he was fine. He took the vaccine. It caused the cardiac arrest. He got one of the subcuticular ICDs and he showed it to me. And it's now been about a year and a half later. And I asked him an important question. I said, has your ICD gone off? Has it shocked your heart again? Sorry, what's an, what's an ICD? I'm not An ICD, you. I'm so sorry. It's an implantable cardio defibrillator. Got it. An, an ICD is uh, what people have. It's like a pacemaker, okay. but it's implanted in the chest. I'm so sorry I didn't explain it. You didn't have an ICD. So it, it actually shocks the heart internally. It's our main guarantee that someone will, you know, if they have a cardiac arrest, they're going to survive again. Virtually everybody who has a cardiac arrest in America has an ICD implanted and Pilot Snow included. So I've been watching Damar Hamlin. He's on the bills. It looks like he's practicing now. I can't tell if he has one of these ICDs or not, the newer form. Uh, clearly, the USC player has it. You, know, you can feel better. But I think it's interesting that the cardiac arrest was a one-time thing for Pilot Snow. Um, now, of the athletes, by the way, who die, uh, UK and the, and the European leagues, we know this, that when they die uh, about – Two-thirds of the time when they have a cardiac arrest, it's fatal. They just can't get them back or no one's there with a defibrillator or they don't have an ICD. And then about a third of the time, it, they can survive. So it's so I want to bring people the news that it's, uh, that it's survivable. You know, in the minutes left, we probably should talk about something positive, and that's <laughs> detoxification. Yeah. We've like, actually was, been working on how to get this spike protein out of the body so people don't have to worry so much. Yeah, before before we we talk about that, can you can you explain a little bit about you know I think a lot of people hear the term spike protein, spike protein, but can you give a sort of layman level overview of exactly what the spike protein is and why why it causes such a problem for many people? The virus is a ball. Everybody is now I think familiar with the virus being a ball, and it has spines on the surface. The spines or the little buds or spicules, that's the spike protein. And it's a pretty big protein. It was engineered in this Chinese biosecurity lab. It's not a natural protein. That's the problem. And the spike protein uh, makes the virus invade the body. It, it contains all the infectious uh, and lethal aspects of the infection is all in the spike protein. The ball itself is pretty benign. So the spike protein is the problem. And what we've learned is that the spike protein, once it gets in the body, the human body can't get rid of it. It, it, it's, it. it doesn't get broken down by normal human enzymes. And it's stuck in the human body. Bruce Patterson, who's at Incel DX, a diagnostic company, has shown spike protein after the infection, stuck in the body, at least the outer segment, stuck for a year and a half. With the vaccine, he's shown the full-length spike protein stuck in the body at least nine months. That's as long as he's looked so far in the studies. So we think it's relatively permanent, and that's the reason why people feel sick. People, uh, they get COVID, long COVID vaccines. They, they feel bad for years afterwards because the every study that's looked at it, the spike protein's in the brain. It's in the vital organs. The body's loaded with this stuff. And people are taking vaccines every six months. They keep getting another dose of the genetic code, coding for the lethal protein, the disease-causing protein. So, okay. so, so just to be clear, people are getting this both from the infection and then from the mRNA shots, which are supposed to uh, <coughs> help keep them help keep them, you know, theoretically out of hospital. Right. 
So the shots are giving spike protein. COVID's giving spike protein. So, so to review, the spike protein damages the heart and causes myocarditis, damages the brain and causes stroke, uh, hits the adrenal gland, the spinal cord, so it changes blood pressure. It directly causes blood clots, causes blood clots. It's actually found in the blood clots. And then it, it, uh, it really damages the immune system. It causes multi-system inflammatory disorder and others. Actually, the body is hyper responding to this spike protein. So the spike protein is a real problem. And so what we've undertaken is uh, our best scholarship, our best clinical acumen and our practice experience to try to get come up with a way that people can get the spike protein out of the body. The U.S. National Institutes of Health is doing no research and no drug company is doing research helping us here. So no one will acknowledge the vaccine is playing a role here. So this is up to clinical judgment. I've checked clinicaltrials.gov. I'm a big time researcher. Listen, I lead big clinical trials. There's nothing. So we'll say, Dr. McCullough, you know, what can you do? We're using a Japanese product called natokinase, derived from the breakdown of soy by Bacillus subtuus natto, a special bacteria. The Japanese have been eating natto for about a, you know, a thousand years for its health benefits. For the last 20 years, they use it as a cardiovascular supplement, a mild blood thinner. It's available in a capsule. Two capsules twice a day is, is the appropriate dose, 2,000 FUs or 100 milligrams twice a day. Natto kinase, huge. Multiple studies shows it dissolves the spike protein. And it's a blood thinner. Uh, so it's just exactly uh, what we need. The best in class is by the wellness company, uh, a Canadian-based company operating now in the United States and Canada, wellness company, Spike Support, uh, the best in class product. It has some other ingredients in it that are helpful. The second item now shown to partially degrade the spike protein may accelerate clearance is bromelain. Bromelain is derived from the stems of pineapples. It's a family of enzymes. Also, we got to... We, we need to help the body get rid of this stuff. And then the last is another natural product is derived from turmeric is called curcumin. Curcumin is, uh, uh, is in a sense derived from a spice and uh, it doesn't dissolve the spike protein, but it helps the body manage the fragments. So there's not so much inflammation. Those three are considered base spike support, natokinase, bromelain, and curcumin. We have a major paper coming out on this in the peer-reviewed literature that I'm going to disseminated across the platforms. But right now it's the base and that's what we're doing in practice. And people say well, they want to add other drugs to it, fine. But people need to go on this probably three months minimum, some people out to 12 months to get this, get ahead of this spike protein. No doubt that that's useful. And I think for, for full transparency, it's, I know people know this podcast for the past few weeks is sponsored by the wellness company and you are their chief scientific officer. Right, so I advise the company. I, I, I don't want it, I don't want anyone listening to this thinking, oh, this thing's like. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, no it's, well, it's an infomercial, or he's just trying no, to push no. his products, or or anything full, like that. This is I just right. want to address that for transparency. Right, full disclosure. I'm the chief scientific officer. I advise the company uh, on a minor part time basis, and it's it's not a big deal. People can get natokinase from any natural store on Amazon. Um, so yeah, no conflict of interest there. And of course, bromelain and curcumin, any natural store there. So, uh, so there's no uh, conflict of interest, uh, to be concerned about, but we, we are concerned about people who are sick. I uniformly recommend it. Now, now there's a few, uh, caveats. One bromelain 
which is, by the way, an FDA-approved drug used as a topical agent in burns, just so you know. So it has medicinal effects. Um, uh, bromelain and natokinase are, uh, you know, they can cause bleeding because they're blood thinners. But most people have taken the shots are having blood clotting, so we need these. But if there's excessive blood uh, bleeding, bruising, uh, we have to make adjustments. That's a caveat. And then there can be allergies, particularly to the, uh, so a little bit of soybean oil that could be in the natokinase. So people, if they have a soy allergy in general, I tell them not to use it. But uh, base spike support conceptually, just like just like McCullough protocol became the standard of how to treat patients with acute COVID-19, base spike, spike support has now become the standard to treat long COVID and vaccine injury syndromes. It's the base of which we can do other things now. No doubt. Um, Dr. McCullough, before, before we close out, I've actually got, um, it's not connected to exactly what we've been discussing, but but it is, it is linked to it. And this is a, this is a thought I have because, um, I was talking with a friend recently about how something sort of strange and interesting that that's happened over the past few years, um, due to yourself speaking out and, uh, you know, Martin Kaldorf, Jay Bhattacharya, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Robert Malone, certain people. And then of course, you know, you have the, 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 the Fauci's and the public health officials of the world and so on is there's been this sort of strange rise in the sort of uh, famous or celebrity doctor almost, right? I mean, you, 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 you see what I mean, right? You've got over, you have over, over a million, you know, over a million people now following you across these channels. Many of these people have become, mm. you know, massively, you know, both, both loved and reviled depending on, you know, people's <laughs> viewpoints on these things. But how do you, what's the best way to put this? How do you avoid what we could call audience capture, right? This is something that mm-hmm. can happen as a podcaster, as a mm-hmm. social media influencer, as a YouTuber, whatever. You you build a large audience and it can be difficult to remain honest, right? I think this is mm-hmm. a problem that, you know, Fauci had, right? I think he's like, hey, look, I'm I'm in this spotlight and I've, you know, he people are viewing me as this sort of hero, um, you know, almost almost as a sort of deity figure for this period of time. And with that, you know, the, the the science or the medicine or what's actually best for people has the risk of taking a hit because mm-hmm. of the, you know, the, the function of the, of the ego and the celebrity and the fame and the mm-hmm. this and that. So I guess my simple question is, how do you, how do you and how will you avoid that, right? How do, how do we, how, how do people keep the, the science and the facts and the data as their reality and avoid the sort of cult of personality taking over and, and, and seeping into that as it's done with honestly, a lot of other, you know, public intellectuals or scientists or even politics, you could extend it to politicians. It's, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a problem that can happen, I guess, with any level of fame, respect, notoriety, celebrity, whatever someone wants to call that. I'd say two things for a doctor. One, uh, are they actively practicing medicine? If they're seeing and examine patients wearing a white coat, having to look somebody in the eye, make decisions, that's huge. So many of the doctors you mentioned, by the way, don't see patients. They don't. So they quickly get lost in their theories or their audience popularity. So seeing patients is number one. In fact, of the doctors you mentioned, I could be the only one seeing patients. Uh, the second is publication in the peer-reviewed in preprint literature, scientific publications. Now, 
I have over 70 peer-reviewed scientific publications on the topics. That's tops of any doctor you've mentioned, probably anyone in the world. Those two things, because scientifically I've put my concepts down on paper and I've put it out there to be bantered about, to be criticized, what have you, in a formal structured way, it's seeing patients and publishing are the two things. Uh, I, I think, honestly, that's the reason why I have the top doctor account on Twitter of doctors to see patients, because the fact that I'm grounded, people know that. The same thing if you know, that's the reason why I was the lead and I co-moderated the two major U.S. Senate hearings. Now, I was a public figure before COVID, so I had already mm-hmm. testified in the Congressional Oversight Panel. I was uh, the endowed visiting lecturer at Harvard in 2019 in two uh, divisions, I lectured in the European Medicine Agency, widely lectured across the UK, elsewhere. Uh, Some of these other people you mentioned, they were unknown before COVID. They were not public figures before COVID. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I think COVID brought people out. It's terrific. People are out and exchanging ideas. I think we should finish by saying, if we can exchange ideas like we did today, all over, that's going to be the answer. Yes. Uh, right right now, I've written the American College of Cardiology. I said, listen, we got to discuss this. Uh, people are having cardiac have, arrest. Have you, have, and have, you know what? Yeah. No answer. No answer. Yeah. They shut me down. They shut I, me down. I was going to ask on that that note, Dr. McCullough. Has anyone, I've, I've seen, um, you know, YouTube videos and, and tweets and articles and whatever, uh, you know, challenging you or questioning you, especially after your appearance on Joe Rogan, I think back right. in 2021. Has anyone or have you have you done any debates about people with other doctors who have different views on the vaccines or the protocols or anything like that? Um, And if if not, is that because you haven't sought to or that's been open and no one has been willing to step up to the plate and have an honest conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's open to credible people. Right. So, I mean, Joe Rogan contacted me and I said, Joe, I'm not going to debate some high school kid or or what have you. I said, you know, a doctor who has many hundreds of publications, a chief of medicine, a dean, uh, an editor, somebody of my stature. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to debate some Las Vegas comedian. What about like a Peter, a Peter Hotez? I know he was running away from it. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, Peter Hotez, he's, he's, he's a bit older than me, but he's junior to me in the, in academic medicine. He has fewer publications and accomplishments. But I messaged out to Rogan. I said, listen, I'd be happy to go over vaccine safety. I'm a data safety expert uh, with Peter Hotez. I said, but it will come out that Hotez had biodefense grants with the Chinese on COVID-19 back in 2016. Oh, boy. (laughs) I said, it'll come off. It's right there. I mean, he was in on this. Oh, and so, you know, as soon as it became known that Hotez was part of this with the Chinese, he's pretty much evaporated, by the way, uh, out of the media. He's pretty much gone. And, and Fauci's, so it's, Fauci's gone as well. Fauci's fully disappeared. Yeah, fully disappeared. So that's the other thing, the disappearance of people. I haven't disappeared. I was a public figure at the very beginning, treating patients. Everyone knew this. I said all the I started Tucker Carlson on his journey for two years you know, you know, kind of, you know, his, you're blowing my mind. You're blowing my mind. I set all the records on Joe Rogan um, for a reason. And I'm still here. I've been very clear. I cited the data today on this interview, which I always do. And in the America and basically the world now trusts me, I think more than any other doctor alive. 
And, and it's, it's not going to stop here. Sooner or later, everybody we talk to is going to have to face me. It's just going to be a hard reality for them to do so. Sooner would be better than later. No doubt. Well, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been great talking to you after all this time. I've been been following you for a few years at this point now. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm grateful for you speaking up. I'm grateful for you challenging a lot of the narratives and the, you know, quote unquote science, not just now, but since before this thing even rolled out. Yep. And I think that takes a remarkable level of courage and insight and honesty. Very few people worldwide have done that and perhaps even had the sort of intellectual chops to be able to. But I think even those who did lack the courage. So that's right. something I and I know many other people massively respect. And um, where's the best place for people to find and follow you online if they'd like to find more of your work and insights? The best central place is my personal website, Peter McCullough, MD. Dot com That'll take you everywhere. But, you know, I started a new foundation, McCullough Foundation. So McCulloughFND.org, uh, that's providing great support for scholarship, a lot of work I'm doing in the legal and public policy arena. I have a podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio McCullough Report, every Saturday and Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern, then on the Apple iHeart Podcast Network. It's the top medical podcast in the world right now. And then Courageous Discourse Substack. That's the top medical substack in the world. And again, it's just the same principles is that we cite the data, we're very clear. And uh, you know, I work with best-selling author John Leake on my book, Courage to Face COVID-19. We have a whole series of publications. And you know, I, I, I picked the right team. I picked the, probably the world's greatest historian right now. He's already a best-selling author. You know, our book, Courage to Face COVID-19, is the only book that reads quickly like a professionally written book. All the other ones are written by doctors or lawyers or politicians, and they don't read. You know, I, I, you know, a book has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Characters that develop courage to face COVID.com is where you get it. Awesome. Dr. McCullough, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you.